topic of our Dhamma talk this evening is the nature of the mind. And during the previous week, we dealt with, the, especially with the contemplation of feelings. There was a talk on feelings in general, and including pleasant feelings. And then another talk on the unpleasant as well as neutral feelings. And then you know, some information about uh, intuitive wisdom and one particular you know, phase of uh, wisdom. Now, gradually we'll you know, pay more attention to you know, what the mind uh, is all about and what the mind is uh, doing. Now, the Abhidhamma speaks of four ultimate realities, and those four ultimate realities are what? Yes, Buckley? Yes, as the last one. <laughs> Rupa, yes. Chitta. And Jetasika, there you go. And so, you know, Rupa stands for materiality, and so, you know, then Chitta, you know, the Pani word Chitta, you know, stands for you know, mind, and so, you know, the Pani word you know, Jetasika stands for mental you know, factors or you know, mental concomitants. And the last one is uh, Nibbana. Now, when we you know, mention the term ultimate reality, it is uh, no, worth uh, no, also to mention you know, that there is something like uh, uh, no, conventional reality, conceptual no, reality. And so, no, the two obviously are not so, no, the same. So, There's certain you know, things, you know, certain formations that have you know, some meaning according to you know, conventional reality, but not necessarily in terms of ultimate you know, reality. Now, uh, one of you know, these you know, would be you know, the notion of a self. And with this, then, you know, expressions you know, such as you know, I and me and mine, and so forth. Now, as ultimate realities, we mean those factors that can no longer be reduced any further. So if you take an object, 
you know, and you keep analyzing it very carefully, you observe it very carefully, what does it consist of? You know, then let's say if it's a you know, physical object, you know, then you, know, you see, oh, it has uh, you know, this quality, that quality, and suddenly in the end, uh, it will consist of, uh, you know, or it will boil down you know, to you know, the four great elements, the dantus, you know, which uh, are present you know, to you know, you know, some extent varying uh, extent. And Satna then as Satna for you know, the mind when you analyze it Satna really you know, carefully, you know, then you, know, you find you know, there is Satna what is known as Satna consciousness and Satna then you know, there are you know, all those mental you know, factors. Now among the you know, four ultimate Satna realities, we can then you know, draw another you know, difference, namely you know, between consciousness, mental factors, and matter, and Nibbana. And Satna, Nibbana is Satna different. Among you know, these two you know, groups, you know, Nibbana again is Satna different. And Consciousness, mental factors, and uh, matter are still you know, conditioned formations, whereas Satna uh, Nibbana is Satna uh, said, said to be you know, the unconditioned. Now, the classical definition of consciousness is. Now, as follows, namely, that it has you know, the characteristic of being conscious of an object. The Pani, the scriptural term for this is Vijanana. And its function is to be you know, the forerunner, the Pani word for it. You know, this is Bubangama. And you know, so the forerunner of the mental you know, factors in that it presides over them and is always accompanied by them. Now, this certainly requires further explanation, especially the aspect of being accompanied by them. The mind consists of these two basic elements. One is consciousness itself, and Satna then, you know, the other you know, component or elements, or element is Satna a mental or, or is a group of mental factors. And so it is not you know, that consciousness arises all by itself, but rather you know, that consciousness will be accompanied by you know, a varying number of mental factors. And Satna, so consciousness is just being conscious of an object. And so, you know, to put it in simpler you know, terms, it Satna simply just takes in an object. And then other activities such as, mm, the, such as contact and Satna, you know, then who are experiencing the feeling of an object and certainly then you know, recognizing the object and certainly then you know, being mindful of it, etc. You know, these are all you know, functions you know, that certainly will be carried on by you know, various certain mental you know, or by the respective certain mental factors. 
And so, when it comes to consciousness, then it's important to understand that there are how many moments of consciousness arising simultaneously? One or two or three or an infinite number. Just one, indeed. One at a time and not two or three or four or more. And so, so you have one moment of consciousness arising and so, this then will be accompanied and together with it a number of mental factors will arise and so, then after a very short period of time this certain consciousness will pass away together with the corresponding mental factors. So you have consciousness and mental factors arising together and passing away together. Now, the manifestation of Vatna consciousness of citta is as a continuity of processes in the Pali scriptural language known as sandana or sandana. And so, and so this means that mm, one moment of consciousness arises, passes. The next moment of consciousness arises and passes, and so on and so forth. So you know, what this then produces is a series of moments of consciousness occurring you know, one after another. And the proximate cause for you know, the arising of consciousness is certainly given as mind and matter because you know, consciousness you know, on its own or cannot arise alone in the complete absence of mental factors and material phenomena. Now, still for a better understanding of consciousness, a few more details. Now, the term consciousness has been defined by the commentators in three different ways, namely as agent, as instrument, and as an activity. So, in terms of an agent, Chitta or consciousness is that which is conscious of an object. In Pali, the definition here is aramanam chintetiti chittam. So, the mind which is, or consciousness which is conscious of an object, that which is conscious of an object. And then, uh, consciousness as an instrument, here, you know, this refers to that by means of which you know, the accompanying mental you know, factors uh, cognize an object or are conscious of an object. And then as an activity, consciousness is itself nothing other you know, than the process of being conscious of you know, the object. Now, these certain three definitions are given or were given by the commentators in particular to also defeat the notion that 
consciousness uh, in one way or the other has certainly something to do with a self. That's uh, um, that it is certainly the the self that then governs certainly everything. And certainly that certainly the self is the agent or the instrument of being conscious. So let me be slightly more precise. It's the first and second definition that's given by the commentators that help to refute the notion of a self, which is being conscious, conscious of an object. Now, in the Anguja Nikaya, its first volume, section 10, we find a statement that then points at a certain one of the many qualities of consciousness, namely as certain follows. And it's a statement given by the Buddha. I consider, O oh, meditators, that there is no phenomenon that comes and goes so quickly as the mind. It is not easy to find a simile to show how quickly the mind comes and goes. And the Buddha did give at least one or two similes for the fastness of the mind. And have you heard of anyone? Yes. Yes, right. Yeah, well, mm, well yeah, one of the similes given by you know, the Buddha is within the snap, a snap of fingers, the time it takes for a snap of fingers to occur, yeah, yeah, well, yeah, yeah, millions or billions of uh, you know, moments of consciousness arise and pass away. So this gives you an idea of how quickly yeah, the mind certainly is certainly operating. And another yeah, simile yeah, given by yeah, the Buddha is within one blinking of yeah, the eyes, yeah, again, so and so many you know, billions of uh, moments of uh, uh, consciousness arise and uh, pass away. Now, if this would not be the case, so if the mind would operate at a really, really, really slow uh, speed, then what would happen? Yes, Buckley? We would be aware of the arising and passing of consciousness. Uh, yes. Yes. And uh, if the mind were ready to operate at a really slow speed, then what about uh, uh, us and or what about uh, humans and their survival? <laughs> <Huh>? <laughs> there would be none. And see, 
um, let's see, there are so many, you know, when, in, when responding to, let's say, you know, some dangerous certain situation, there are so many processes that the mind has to go through to evaluate what is going on and then you know, to respond properly. If the mind were to operate at a really, really, really slow speed, well, we'd be knocked over it, you know, uh, the next moment. And so, you know, so and so, you know, when we you know, compare you know, the speed of one, the, you know, the, you know, the time it takes for a material you know, phenomenon to arise and pass away, you know, 17 mind moments arise and pass away. So when we compare the two, the speed of the mind in comparison to you know, you know, you know, the time it takes for a material phenomenon to arise and pass away, you see, we see a big difference there. And uh, you know, so the mind, you know, a bodily phenomenon is rather, you know, rather slow, and uh, you know, the mind is much you know, faster, and it has to be you know, like you know, this. Now, Dhammapada verse you know, thirty-five. Gives us some uh, or further clue about the nature of the mind. The verse in Pali is Dunigahasalahuno Yata Kamani Patino Chitasadamato Sadu Chitam Dantam Sukhawaham. The meaning of Futna this is the mind is difficult to control swiftly and lightly. It moves and lands wherever it pleases. It is good to tame the mind, for a well-tamed mind brings what? Happiness and not suffering. And Satna so this Satna Dhammapada verse is Satna telling us that the mind has a tendency of the well flitting here and there. And Satna this we can observe very nicely in our own meditation practice. Especially at the beginning of the retreat, trying to when you sit there with eyes closed, you try to observe the rise and fall, and uh, your mind is all over you know, the place. Even the body may be, you know, they may be present here in the hall, but the mind may still be at home. Um, and so, you know, so you know, this, you know, the mind you know, flitting here and there is you know, quite true. And even you know, though our you know, mind may be here, even after a week or two of intensive you know, meditation practice, the mind may still go on some you know, journey to a far away country. And uh, you know, imagining, you know, imagining what, uh, or, you know, you know, what our next uh, vacation is going to be like, where you know, you know, maybe you know, we feel attracted you know, to you know, the uh, you know, Amazonas or you know, the jungle of you know, the Amazon. And so our mind goes there. Now, 
this same Dhammapada verse, Satnya 35, then also states that it is easy or difficult to tame the mind. Well, uh, very, uh, very easy. It's not easy to tame you know, the mind, as certainly you will see, and it actually takes certainly quite a lot of certainly patience and certainly persistence. Now, do keep in mind also for later on in the talk the you know, the sentence or you know, the statement that it is good to tame you know, the mind for a well-tamed mind you know, brings certain you know, happiness. So this will be explained you know, later on a bit more. Now, when you know, dealing with you know, the mind, you know, we you know, may, not only you know, do we discover that it's extremely you know, swift, not only do we you know, discover that it lands here and there, but you know, we may also discover that from one moment to the next, a tremendous change in mental states can occur. So for a moment, for the present moment, our mind is maybe full of loving kindness, and then something happens, maybe something that is against our expectations. I'm sorry. And so you know, then the next you know, moment, anger uh, you know, flares up. And so previously loving kindness was there, and so, you know, now we find so, you know, the mind uh, you know, doing you know, or, or you know, you know, being in an you know, uh, opposite certain state. So we might in the you know, in the morning when we you know, wake up. And that we think of you know, the day ahead, you know, we might you know, be filled with you know, much you know, faith in you know, the practice of you know, the Dhamma, and you know, then you know, we get ready for you know, the day. You know, we go down you know, to, you know, or we come here to you know, the meditation hall, and you know, then we practice, and you know, then you know, maybe you know, there's a you know, meditator who comes you know, comes in late and so it's making quite some noise, and so this so then uh, may already you know, distract the mind somewhat. And our you know, faith you know, loses its strength, and so then, you know, then comes the second, then comes another meditator, even later, and then comes yet another meditator, and even later. So by the third meditator arriving late, our mind might be pretty impatient. And so then we have already a development from, you know, from at first you know, rather our mind filled with faith and to you know, then a mind filled with impatience. Then you know, finally the sit is over and you know, there's already a strong you know, sensation of hunger in the, in the, in the stomach and you know, then you know, we you know, make it in time to the buffet as the, first, as the second person. Then Viranyani is first and you know, <laughs> 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 and then we just can't wait to get to the buffet and fill our plate and so, 
And and then you know, the meditators sort of behind us uh, no, no, well, you know, they have to you know, be contented with whatever is left over, <laughs> if, if there's anything at all. <laughs> now, fortunately, the forest refuge is uh, providing plenty of food, and uh, and so. Any other ways, and so when taking food, then it is not unrealistic to say that another change of mental state might occur. This time around, which mental state might arise? Greed, indeed. And so, so then within just a few hours, we've had first faith, then the impatience, and or, or yeah, impatience, and so, then as number three, greed. And so, then when you go through the day and you think of its highlights, then the mental states may change many more times. And actually, just three major mental states in over a couple of hours is not much. <laughs> that is really understating the case. So anyways, the point is that certainly easily, easily the mind certainly can change its coloration, so to speak, from one mind moment to the next. Now, before we ever undergo an intensive meditation retreat, we may hold our own mind in high esteem. And suddenly thinking, oh, this mind is so, you know, so clever and or so smart, and it's operating at such great speed, and it has this fabulous memory, and it's you know, the thinking is so logical, and it's really wonderful. But then comes the great disappointment with the first retreat. And so, yeah, then the instruction is certainly given, please certainly try to observe your primary object, namely the rising and falling movement of the abdomen you know, for an extended certain period of time. And certainly then yeah, you realize within you know, less than a minute, you know, your mind is wandering off already. And so barely has it picked up a few details about the rise and fall and it's already gone somewhere else. Now, there you sit, uh, you happen to be a holder of, a, or there you sit, you hold a, you know, a PhD title, you think highly of you know, your you know, intellectual you know, capacity, and you see all this wandering mind going on. And we've had in Lumbini one meditator who, re who actually was a PhD student, or no, I think even completed his PhD, and he was greatly disappointed to the point of uh, almost shedding tears. And so it, was, it came like a big revelation for you know, the person. How could the mind be so, you know, so unreliable? And so, now, when we, we may be sitting there in meditation 
and certainly our body may be in really good shape. And before the retreat, we did so we worked out, and uh, you know, we participated in you know, maybe you know, some um, well, you know, some uh, aikido classes, or you know, we've done you know, we've participated in some aerobic certain classes, or maybe a regular workout, and certain or maybe even you know, jogging, and certain, you know, then. Oh, so our body is in pretty good Satna shape, but Satna after a while we realize our mind is not quite uh, as well trained and as strong as Satna the body is. And we realize this especially you know, when you know, at times we get sad for no particular reason, and suddenly then you know, we think of ourselves as being a rather en- a rather energetic person. We run out of energy, and then we think of ourselves as being a rather manly person, and we see ourselves shedding tears. What uh, this really shatters our self-image, and so. And so, this Satna then comes as a great reminder of what? The strengths of our mind or the weaknesses of our mind? (laughs) Well, the weaknesses of our mind. And Satna then, uh, we've had, I think it's even the same, a different meditator in Otsunobini. A, a meditator who had just you know, done some volunteer work in you know, a spiritual you know, community affiliated to Mother Teresa in India, so had helped you know, the very you know, poor and felt really strong uh, about you know, the work he had done and certainly himself, and felt that he was a re, you know, a good person. And suddenly then, after just a few days of intensive practice and all sorts of rubbish coming up in you know, the mind, this person was highly, or ended up highly disappointed. And so we may think of ourselves as a rather pure being, you know, we're doing all this great social work and we're helping others, we're working with the poor and yet, and then we might find ourselves spending many hours in, many hours in a day backbiting or not even this, we sit there in meditation and suddenly then we think badly about our fellow yogis and so on. Or, we may think of ourselves as suddenly being a rather, you know, fearless certain person. You know, we don't certainly we're not afraid at all you know, to walk around in in the dark, not even in uh, downtown New York. And, uh, <laughs> and so, you know, then and then we come on a retreat. And suddenly, then again, our outlook on life changes a bit. When all of a sudden, when maybe we see, we come across a certain experience, and suddenly, then all of a sudden, fear is suddenly there. Where did this sudden fear come come from? And so, then we may 
mm, well, foolishly you know, think you know, that the mind is such a peaceful uh, thing. And we you know, sit you know, in you know, meditation, and, uh, and then after that we do our you know, walking meditation, and then maybe during the walking meditation, a fellow meditator, you know, just for a moment or two, happens to be absent-minded and then bumps into us. And then we get totally upset about this. And how come this meditator cannot be more mindful? And yes, no right to bump into me, etc. And the mind does what? It explodes. And it erupts just like a volcano. And if you haven't... Um, well, if you don't quite know about the damage that can be wrecked by a volcano, just remember that volcano in Iceland not long, not too long ago. So, it's just to refresh your memory. It's created havoc not only in Europe but as far as places such as Indonesia. One of our meditators who was supposed to come to a retreat in Italy, he worked for some Swiss developing aid corporation in Indonesia and suddenly then because of the volcano eruption on Iceland well the planes suddenly were not suddenly taking off so he couldn't catch a flight from Indonesia back to Europe and it took him a long time to make it by the time he got back to Switzerland he was he had no more time left to come to the retreat. And so think of all those certain many people who got stranded, stranded on or at the airports all over Europe. And think of all, well, Buckley, you haven't. When was this? When was this? Well, you've been on retreat for quite some time. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, this happened. <laughs> This happened during the you know, during the month of April, and actually for quite certain uh, quite some time. And certainly, so you know, it certainly created a, a major loss, you know, financial loss, certainly to the aviation you know, industry, uh, no, in in terms of not just uh, thousands of dollars, but millions or, or billions of you know, dollars. And so, anyways, uh, the you know, you know, the planes not flying anymore, and so, you know, then people stuck at the airports. You know, then people had to you know, opt for alternatives, and in no time, you know, all the trains were jammed packed. How do you say jam packed? You know, so jammed you know, packed. So you know, for sure, you know, people getting you know, stuck in you know, this were you know, quite affected. And actually, I myself was worrying: Will I make it you know, here across you know, the Atlantic? What if you know, the you know, volcano uh, erupts again? You know, you know, around you know, my flight from Israel to you know, to the East Coast. Fortunately. Uh, the volcano has somewhat died down. So, the mind can be 
as dangerous and as damaging as a volcano. And certainly, so do keep this in mind. And as we have seen already to some extent, the untrained, untrained and untamed mind is also rather unreliable, rather fickle and painful. Now, to give you a very simple example for the high what's the word for it, volatility of the mind, you say this? And so, so we sit there and, so, or, or no, we just, no, we don't even have to sit. Now, let's say you know, we stand somewhere and we see an object that is rather uh, enticing or rather attractive. And suddenly then, immediately, this, if we do not guard the mind, this will have an impact on the mind. And so it's just seeing some external object and right away the impact is there. And suddenly then, let's say, some desire arises, some fantasies follow. Or we see maybe some undesirable object, maybe um, what certain to say we get certain to the lunch table and then maybe the table is not quite clean there's a little bit of leftover from the breakfast and certain then um, we feel rather irritated and so um, so irritation arises. And suddenly then, as suddenly discussed during you know, the Dhamma talk on feelings, when we come across suddenly some um, object with bland features, then a neutral feeling will arise, and the result of this is going to be the arising of ignorance. There you go. And suddenly so easily when we come across a so-called you know, loba inducing object loba is the pani term for greed you know, then greed indeed arises when we come across certain you know, some object you know, that certain you know, um, easily induces uh, ill will dosa then you know, ill will will actually arise and the same thing you know, goes certain you know, for uh, a widja or uh, uh, ignorance. And so ignorance suddenly then arises. So just uh, be aware of this particular nature of the mind. Now, our venerable teacher, the venerable Sadhu Pandita Bhimams of Burma, has a nice way of pointing out another weakness of the mind. So he says, even though the, our body may be advanced in age, so we might be you know, maybe 50 years of age or 60 or 70, yet you know, you know, our state of mind you know, could certainly compare to to a two or three year old. 
And the reason for this is that the mind is so sensitive, so tender, and so someone comes up and maybe says or uses a word that maybe challenges our self, our sense of self, just a little bit. And we feel offended, and suddenly then maybe we start crying, and why did he say this and that, and suddenly so on. And suddenly so. Now, the Venerable says a person may be advanced in age, but if his or her mind is still small or infantile and tender, this is not good. Saplings and young fruits cannot withstand the elements of nature. Likewise, a small tender mind cannot withstand the vicissitudes of life. This is directly quoted from a booklet entitled Raindrops in Hot Summer. Now, the untrained and untamed mind um, could certainly be described as certain follows, namely that it is wild, that it is gross, and certainly maybe also uncultured. Do you have other words for it? You've been looking at the mind already for quite some days, and so what did you find out? Uncontrollable, yes. Bad neighborhood. Bad neighborhood, yes. Okay, very good. That's a nice way of putting it, <laughs> indeed. Undisciplined, yes. Pardon me. Dull, yes. Oh, stupid and stubborn, yes. Indeed, does any does anyone disagree? Any other characteristics? Easily pulled off balance. Easily pulled off balance, quite correct. Now, the Buddha has expressed the weaknesses or the defilements of the mind as follows. He says, um, the untrained mind, the untrained, the un untrained, untamed mind um, can, be, you know, can be characterized as follows, namely, as being sick, adura in Pali, as being corrupt, samkilesa, as being stained, you know, depraved and impure, upakilita, as being obsessed, as being, you know, as longing, eager, greedy and unsteady, the Pani term for this is Lola, so just uh, think of uh, you know, the mind at you know, the buffet. Then as unbalanced, as disturbed, agitated and shaken, as clinging, as sticking, as being slow, sluggish and dull. And the Pani, and certainly, you know, this is indeed what certainly one of you said, and some the Pani for this is Lina and Atilina, as difficult to direct on a steady course, Dupa Watiya, as wavering, wandering, straying and confused, 
Pariudita, then as debased and low, Nikata, as beaten or afflicted, Ahata, as upset and unhinged, Kita, as defiled, corrupt and tarnished, Byachita, as impassioned, Sarata, as misdirected, Dupanihita, as malevolent, Byapana, and we're coming, gradually coming to an end, <laughs> as certain, you know, swerving, swaying, staggering, and deviating, and bound and fettered, Awimuta. So it's a long list of, you know, well, the, you know, weak qualities of the mind. Now, do we want to continue to live with such a mind? <laughs> Is there anyone among you who cherishes this state of mind? Well, well, I suppose we all want our mindset to be you know, in better shape. Yes, indeed. And you know, since, as the Venerable Sadhu Pandita likes to point out, um, we have left the, the mind in an untrained state, not just for a few you know, days or so, but for years and you know, possibly even for several existences. And so, then what do you expect? And so the mind then naturally will be rather unruly. And sometimes meditators expect the mind or expect to gain instant results, just like you have instant coffee. So you just pour one teaspoonful in or two into your cup, you add a little bit of hot water, sugar and milk, and then you've got your instant cup of coffee. And with the mind, I'm sorry to say, you won't be able to tame it that quickly. And so, like Peter said, it takes hard work. It's difficult to do, but it can be done. And we just need lots of patience and certain time. Now, the Buddha was not a pessimist. And he left it, not just with describing the weaknesses of the mind, but he also, unfortunately, gave us those many strong and positive qualities of the mind. So he says, the trained, and these are qualities taken from different passages in the text. The trained mind is variously described as being healthy, anatura, as being fully developed, paribhavita, as being unattached, asalina, as being contented, santusita, as being active and pliable, kamaniya, as straight and upright, samujujata, as being detached, virata, as being steady, tita, as being free from covetousness and free from malevolence and confusion, vita raga, vita dosa, vita moha, free from perversion, 
Avipalat, um, as being pure, resplendent, full of inward calm and serenity, Ajatam Vupasanta, as being tranquil, Upasanta, as being concentrated, Samahita, as being cleansed, Pariyodata, free from blemishes, purged of defilements, supple mudubhuta, unperturbed, freed mutta, and utterly released. So, um, this certainly is a description of the potential of the mind. So, whether we leave the mind in its untrained, untamed state, or we develop it to what has been just described, is entirely uh, with us. Now, the mind can be said to be the cradle and vehicle of bondage and misery, namely dukkha. But the mind can also be said to be the means and the locus of enlightenment, of sambodhi and emancipation, nibbana. So the mind has this twofold potential towards rather un, being unruly and not very reliable and certainly then and certain ultimately leading to suffering and certainly then on the other hand it can lead us all the way to liberation. And certainly there is a passage in the second volume of the Diganikaya, section 81, where it says in Pali, Panya paribhavitam chaitam samadera asavahihi vimuchati, which means the mind can be freed from all its defilements through the development of wisdom. So, just the statement, it can be freed, is already rather encouraging. And so the Buddha is vouching that this is possible if we are willing to follow his instructions. Now, what this practice of Satipatthana is all about is certain to simply, by being mindful of whatever predominant object arises, we purify the mind of unwholesome mental states, first on a temporary basis, later on on a permanent basis. And certainly then we also develop much detachment towards all formations and the result of this then is going to be the arising of wisdom, of intuitive wisdom. The Buddha has uh, uh, described in rather clear words and in many different certain ways a certain gradual and systematic path of Phutna training that will lead us all the way from the first hearing of Phutna, the Dhamma and you know, the arising of some initial you know, faith all the way you know, to the realization of the path and fruition knowledge which take Nibbana as an object. And freedom of the mind consists 
in, well, putting or doing away with all the limitations of the mind, which then make life unnecessarily difficult for ourselves. So the mind has this potential to grow beyond uh, its own uh, boundaries. And within just maybe a week or two of intensive practice, I think as a meditator, one can at least get um, some understanding of this. Now, in the Anguttara Nikaya, now, there is a statement, but I don't, Anguttara Nikaya, Volume 1, but the exact you know, section I don't have yet. Um, now, there's a statement that apparently says that um, only the purified mind is capable of understanding what is best you know, for oneself, others, and the truth that transcends the untrained mind. So, um, as long as the mind is, or, or whenever the mind is defiled by this or that mental impurity, then it would be unwise to take some decision, because it might very well happen that it's not going to be for our own benefit. But uh, when we make it a point to, de- to take decisions only when you know, the mind is relatively pure and certain, any kind of anger or greed or so has died down, you know, then our decisions aren't likely you know, to be much more you know, beneficial you know, for ourselves as well as certain for you know, others and you know, both ourselves and others. Now, Dhammapada verse number 35, as well as number 36, speak of or speak to the point that it is good to train the mind or to guard the mind, for it brings happiness. And so Dhammapada verse 36 is similar. In nature 2, 35, it says, the mind is very difficult to see, very delicate and subtle. It moves and lands wherever it pleases. The wise one should guard one's wise, one should guard one's mind, for a guarded mind brings sudden happiness. So when we train the mind, then we can expect what kind of benefits to arise apart from happiness. Major benefits. Freedom from all the negativity, yes, and David? Tranquility, yes, and Buckley? Fewer transgressions, yes. Clarity, yes. And certainly, if you think of the next existence, rebirth, then you will, you will, or maybe not. <laughs> Indeed, that's well put. 
<laughs> you know. And so, if we don't become an arahant, then at least we you know, make sure that our next you know, that we don't take you know, rebirth in a lower existence, but rather maybe in a well, either we get reborn as certain human beings, which is rather fortunate, or maybe as a, as a celestial being or a Brahman. And so, you know, training and guarding you know, the mind you know, results uh, in happiness, clarity, and certain you know, less transgressions, and also good, certain you know, favorable you know, rebirth. And certain you know, then, in terms of you know, self-respect, does it help or not? When you, you know, look at yourselves and uh, you see, oh. My physical conduct is so pure. My verbal conduct has been so pure for the weeks and months now. And when you think of your mind also, or the mind has also been relatively pure, not quite perfect, but it's getting better, then you feel of yourself as rather shameful or not. So, um, and then point, yeah, one will be delighted that a certain sense of joy yeah, may arise, and certainly then one yeah, will have respect yeah, for oneself. And usually, yeah, then when one is interacting, maybe after a retreat, yeah, with others, others will yeah, have much more respect yeah, for yeah, oneself. Now, um, training the mind is uh, a fabulous way of uh, no, also no, training and certain perfecting the no, paramis, the ten no, paramis. Sometimes the question is being raised by meditators, mm, you know, do I have to, you know, outside of a retreat, do I have to separately you know, train in these paramis? Do I have to do something to you know, develop them? And the answer is actually not really. The most powerful way of you know, developing your paramis, your perfections, you know, such as dana parami and sila parami and bhavana parami and so on, you know, is to meditate. And so, you know, this certainly will change if you've been you know, weak in, you know, let's say, let's say in patience or so, then through the practice it will improve your patience. And so if previously you've been a rather stingy person, then as more and more wholesome mental states suddenly come up, the greed decreases and you more and more see the needs of others, well, a greater sense of generosity comes up. And so on and so forth. Now, also there will be a greater, a greater satisfaction. And certainly the Dhammapada Atagata, so that's your commentary to the Dhammapada, points out other benefits such as well, the attainment of path, knowledge, fruition, knowledge, and Nibbana can be hoped for. So if you train the mind, that's what you uh, eventually you know, will end up uh, in terms of uh, benefits. But there's so many benefits. Now, just a brief story uh, followed by a Dhammapada verse 
namely verse number 37, that should make it very clear how important it is to train the mind. And what might happen if one neglects this work, namely. So once, at the time of the Buddha, there lived in Sawati, so that's in northern India, a senior bhikkhu by the name of Sangha Rokita, protector of the Sangha. And when his sister gave birth to a son, she named Satna the child after the Tera, after the elder, and Satna later on he became known as Sangha Rakita Baginea, so the nephew of Sangha Rakita. Now, he no, no, gradually no, no, grew in age, and Satna then, at Satna the proper time, he was Satna admitted into no, the order. And then, no, while uh, this Satna um, Sangharokita Baginea was a young no, no, bhikkhu, he stayed in a village monastery. And Satna there, he was offered two sets of robes. And Satna then, out of much Satna respect Satna for his uncle, he then decided to offer one of these two sets of robes to his uncle. And so he went to his uncle's Satna monastery, or to the monastery where the uncle was residing in Sawati, and Satna he then paid respect and Satna offered the set of robes. And then the unexpected happened, namely the uncle refused. Refused accepting the set of robes, saying since he was a Mahatera and he had enough requisites, enough robes, and his nephew, he probably out of compassion for the nephew, he didn't want to accept. For a second time, the nephew tried to offer, the elder refused for a third time. Now, by this time, the young Nebeku felt, what do you think, very pleased or rather disheartened? Well, disheartened. And then he thought that since his uncle was unwilling to share the requisites with him, it would be far better for him to leave the order and live the life of a lay person. And so he felt really offended by it. He really took it personally. Now, from that point, um, his mind, from that point onwards, his mind wandered. Please remember, he's still you know, in the monastery you know, with his uncle in Sawati. So his mind wandered, and a train of thoughts followed. He thought that after leaving the order, after disrobing, he would sell the robe and buy a she-goat. So already his mind is on quite a different path. And that she-goat would breed quickly, and soon he would make enough money to enable him to marry. Oh, quite an interesting development. His wife, then, would give birth to a son. And then he would take his wife and child in a small cart to visit his uncle at the monastery. On the way, he would say that he would carry, on the way he would say to his certain wife, then please you carry the child. She would tell him to drive the cart and not bother about the child. 
he would insist and grab the child from her. Between them, the child would drop on the cart track and the wheel would pass over the child. He would get so furious with his wife that he would strike her with the golding stick. At that time, the nephew, was fanning Vitera, the elder, with a palmyra fan, and he absent-mindedly struck the head of the terror with the fan. The terror, knowing the thoughts of the young bhikkhu, said, you were unable to beat your wife. Why have you beaten an old bhikkhu? Young Sangharakita was very much surprised and embarrassed at the words of the old Satna Bhikkhu. He also became extremely frightened because he realized Satna Dhatera was reading his Satna thoughts. And Satna, so he ran away. The young Bhikkhu, some young Bhikkhus at the monastery and some novices chased after him and finally caught up with him and took him to into the presence of the Buddha. And then when the Buddha was told about the whole episode, he said that the mind has the ability to think of an object even though it may be far away, and that one should strive hard for liberation from bondage of passion, ill will, and ignorance. Then the Buddha spoke in verse. And certainly the verse is, I'll, I'll give you the Pani, Durangamam ekacharam asariram guhasayam ye chitam samyamisanti mokanti marabandana. The meaning of this in English is, the mind wanders far and moves about alone. It is non-material. It lies in the cave. And that's all the Buddha is saying. Those who control their mind will be free from the bonds of Mara. So do keep in mind that certainly if you leave your mind unrestrained for just a moment or two, much damage could be much damage could happen. Now uh, we are you know, the third week of our retreat has certainly uh, started. Um, two weeks have uh, passed, and uh, at certainly uh, the outset of our intensive retreat here, um, our group of uh, meditators was very much uh, committed to uh, do the practice with much care and respect. And I do hope that you will renew, all of you will renew this commitment for the second half of our retreat. So time is increasing or time is running out? Time is running out by the day, by the hour, by the minute. And what has to be, what has to be achieved has already been achieved or not? Have you or have you not? Very. Yeah. <laughs> Probably. Very <laughs> not. And certainly, so this means you know, that certainly we you know, will you know, 
until the very end of the retreat, so during the second half, we will try to, if or should we have become, as a group, should we have become slack a little bit in this way or in that way, then we will work on it and certainly then be committed to practice wholeheartedly. And as was mentioned at certainly the outset of the retreat, with much care and respect. Now, the Dhamma is precious. And certainly so when we practice certainly this Dhamma, we want to do with most, utmost care and respect in order to honor the Dhamma. Actually, to practice with care and respect is one of the nine ways of sharpening the controlling faculties, the five faculties of faith, of effort, of mindfulness, and concentration, and wisdom. The Pani for this care and practicing with care and respect is given as Tathacha Sakacha Kiriyaya Sambhaditi. Now, working carefully, literally it means working carefully, respectfully, or thoroughly. So, in practice, this means that well, we try to be really mindful from moment to moment, and we really try, when we open and close doors, we do so slowly and mindfully, and then we also try to be really mindful when taking in, in the dining hall, when we approach the buffet, when we take the food, we also want to respect our fellow meditators and we want to make sure that no one is or gets somewhat encroached upon. And then we also want to respect the group sittings and we want to come on time and we try not to come late and also we try not to, in the midst of the sitting, get up in certain storm out of the hall. And we do want to not only for our, we do want to practice with care and respect and with regard to our own meditation practice, but we also want to practice consideration for others. So if there's anything, any activity that could possibly annoy others, then we want to uh, not engage in it. Now, there are also you know, activities that might not be all that related to intensive practice, you know, such as reading books or you know, you know, checking the news on the computer or you know, uh, what not. And so, you know, so these kind of activities, you know, please, we try to um, not engage in. And so we're here to, um, to really practice seriously to gain 
you know, some tangible you know, benefits you know, from uh, the practice. And so if there is anything that is unrelated, that interferes so, you know, with our you know, meditation, also with the meditation of others, you know, then uh, it uh, might be worth uh, uh, not engaging in it. Now, the, the Buddha, in regard you know, to you know, practicing with uh, utmost mindfulness has certainly given a simile, a very nice certain simile. Uh, it seems at certain the time of a group of bhikkhus was certainly practicing, um, or the practice was certainly maybe uh, getting less intense, and Satnya then they were not you know, their practice wasn't developing you know, that much anymore. And Satnya then the Buddha spoke as follows. And I'll try to you know, recall you know, from memory as much as possible. It's maybe a little bit in, uh, inaccurate here and there. Thus have I heard, so that's uh, Elder Ananda speaking. Mm. At one time, the Buddha was dwelling in the land of the Sumbas in a town named Sedaka. And there, a group of there he addressed a group of bhikkhus. And suddenly, then you know, the you know, bhikkhu said, Venerable sirs, or the, book, you know, the Buddha said, Bhikkhus, and you know, the bhikkhus in turn said, Venerable sir. And then the Buddha started out. And once upon a time, you know, there was, no, what was it? No, bhikkhus, mm, upon hearing, the most beautiful girl in the country is will be coming or will be dancing and singing. So upon hearing this public announcement, a great crowd of people gathered. Then the upon then the this most beautiful girl of the country actually while she was exquisitely dancing and while she was exquisitely singing the announcement was repeated the most beautiful country the most beautiful girl in the country is dancing and the most beautiful girl in the country is singing an even greater crowd assembled and then there was a man who held in high esteem his own life and who did not want to die and who also very much wanted to be happy and not wanted to encounter suffering and there was another man who came up to him and said, please carry this bowl of oil full to the brim through the crowd, through the crowd and in front of this most beautiful girl of the country that is dancing and singing with a man walking right behind you with a sword drawn ready 
you know, to, you know, you know, and then with the injunction, if you spill just one drop of oil at that very spot, you know, your head will be felled. And Satna then the Buddha asked Satna the group of bhikkhus, what do you think? <laughs> Would Satna this man who you know, was asked to carry a bowl of oil you know, full to you know, the brim through you know, the crowd, would this Satna man um, keep his Satna attention on, keep his mindfulness on you know, the body or not, be negligent or not? And what would be your answer? Be negligent, Buckley. Sorry. Does not feel like that, or it does feel that way. And so, so the the answer then is the answer. That's your answer. Pardon me. It's a no-brainer. Well, okay. So obviously, the the answer is. Not to be negligent and certainly to keep the attention on on this ball. Now, the Buddha then went on to clarify: this is a simile that I have just made up, and so it was just meant as a teaching tool to bring across the importance of uh, mindfulness. And he, sa- he then further de- explained that this bowl of oil filled to the brim corresponds to what? Practice. Yes, practice and mindfulness of what? Body. Of the body. There you go. Mindful contemplation of uh, the body. So when this man had to walk through a crown carrying this bowl of oil filled to the brim, then his attention had to be fully on, uh, on that bowl. Likewise, in our meditation practice, we need to, when physical objects are predominant, we need to keep our attention fully on the, uh, the body. And if, uh, by extension, if a feeling becomes predominant, then uh, we want to uh, keep our attention uh, fully uh, on uh, this uh, feeling. And then also the same thing for uh, the mind and uh, for dhammas. So, with uh, let me um, yeah, let me conclude today's Satna Dhamma talk by wishing may all of us you know, during you know, the no, or may all of us during the you know, remaining two weeks of you know, this Satna retreat practice with a strong and renewed commitment you know, to you know, the meditation, to you know, do this meditation with great certain care and certain respect at certain all times in hopes of further deepening our meditation for our own benefit and also for the benefit of others and for the benefit of both ourselves and others. And this is it.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.